Walter Anderson is now 72 years old. He retired several years ago, but for more than 20 years, he was the editor and then the CEO of Parade Magazine. Parade Magazine has the largest circulation of any magazine in the world. It goes into the middle of your Sunday newspaper. You get it each week, and it has all kinds of wonderful interviews. Well, Walter was a, a great, great man. He, he brought such an amazing spirit, such a professionalism. He's written five different books. I love his books. He's spoken all around the world. He's just an amazing guy. And I saw an interview with him recently in which he was talking about his life and when he was growing up. He actually grew up in Mount Vernon there in New York. And the neighborhood that he grew up in was actually very poor. It was one of those where it was a real struggle, lots of violence on the streets. But he said the violence on the streets was second to the violence he had at home. His father was an alcoholic, and quite often he and his mother were abused by their father. It was a hard time. And the place that he liked to go to get away from all that was to the home of Elsie Williams. He said if it wasn't for Elsie Williams, his life would have turned out very different. Elsie was a teacher. And he said, without a doubt, she had to be the smartest woman in our neighborhood. And it turned out her son, Barry, was Walter's best friend. He said, it was interesting we were best friends because we didn't have a whole lot really in common. He said, it turned out, you know, that, uh, that Barry, he lived in a home. Walter lived in the projects. Barry's home was one of peace. Walter's home was one of violence. He said Barry was kind of tall, thin, good-looking, and he said that Walter was sort of short and stocky. Barry was black. Walter was white. Now, he said the only thing we really had in common was we both loved his mother. But we were best friends, and he said we always would go do everything together and play and enjoy. School was always a struggle. But it was Miss Williams, Elsie, who was always going, how are you doing in school, Walter? Are you getting your homework done? Let's talk about it. you got to get an education. You know this is important. He said she was always interested in me. And then she did this really neat thing. She got both of us boys to sit down, and she would always tell us stories. And like one time it was great expectations. There was this boy who went to the cemetery at night. And he started to hear voices. And she would tell the story. And she would get us engaged. And finally, after it had gone on for a good while and we were hooked, she would say, and if you want to know how the story ends, you have to go to the library and check out the book. <laughs> and Walter said it worked. He said, I went to the library. I was hooked. I had to know how it ended. And he said, what I discovered was the library was a place of peace. And I, loved, I discovered I loved to read. No, it changed my life. Well, in the meantime, he was going to school, and it was a tough neighborhood, and he was struggling. And so Ms. Williams went to his parents and said, what about putting Walter in a parochial school? And so they got him into a parochial school. It actually took a year and a half before he got kicked out. But he was continuing to act up, and so they expelled him. And here came Miss Williams to the rescue. 
she came back in and she now got him enrolled where her son Barry was enrolled. It was a private school and she managed to get him a scholarship so that he could now afford to go there. And there he thrived for a number of years, all the way through the eighth grade, he thrived. Miss Williams is always there. You're doing your homework. You got to get an education, Walter. He said, what I discovered was no matter what I did, Miss Williams was going to be there for me. Got to the end of the eighth grade. She lined up an interview with them for two college preparatory schools. And the boys interviewed at both of them. Both of them got accepted to both of them. Both of them got scholarships to both of them. Barry chose where he was going to go. And then Walter said, I think I'm going to stay close to home. He knew that it was going to crush Miss Williams. She had lined it all up. She had this education for him. He said, I'm not going to get in trouble, I promise. He promptly started running with the wrong crowd. He got into trouble. And before he was 16 years old, he dropped out of high school. He hated going around Miss Williams because he knew he had disappointed her so much. But whenever he'd see Barry and he'd go to her home, well, there she was. Walter, you got to get an education. You know, we can do this. We can do this, Walter. You got to get this education. Well, he finally joined the Marines. He joined the Marines, and after he'd been in the Marines for a while, one day it, it just kind of finally hit him. You know, at 21 years old, I'm going to get out of the Marines and I don't have a ninth grade education. And he could hear Ms. Williams' voice whispering in his ear, you got to get an education, Walter. You got to do this. So he talked to his commanders, asked about a GED, and they helped him, and he soon, he was very smart. He got his GED, started taking college courses. When he got out of the Marines, he went to college, and he would graduate valedictorian. She would be there to cheer him as he walked across the stage. You can do this, Walter. He wanted to be a newspaper reporter. He got involved in newspapers. And as you know, he'd go on to become the editor of Parade Magazine, CEO. He lived this amazing life. But in the interview, he said, my life would not be where it is today except for one person, Miss Elsie Williams. What I learned was no matter what I did, she wouldn't quit on me. That is the essence of the message and the ministry of Jesus. No matter what you do, God won't quit on you. That's what it's about. This morning is Palm Sunday. It's a Sunday in which we are remembering how the children came by waving their palm branches as Jesus came riding into Jerusalem and they were shouting, Hosanna, that is, save us, save us. That's what it means. We looked at Palm Sunday in detail a couple of weeks ago. And what we saw was Jesus came riding in on a donkey, a symbol of peace. And the crowds turned out and were so excited. Jesus would go to the temple and for five days he would teach in the temple. The crowds were building. Millions of Jews from around the world had come to Jerusalem all to celebrate the Passover. 
And now you had the crowds and you had the enthusiasm and time was up. And then on Thursday, it was the day of the Passover. Jesus and his disciples would celebrate the Passover that night in an upper room. And after the meal was over, Judas would slip out. He would go to the religious authorities and he would lead them back to the Garden of Gethsemane. He would go and kiss Jesus on the cheek and the soldiers would step out of the shadows and all the disciples fled. Jesus was led to the high priest house. Only Peter followed along behind at a distance. He came into the courtyard warming himself and then we had one of the maids show up and looked at him and said, you, I I recognize you, you were with him. Not not me, I, I don't know him, I've never seen the man. And the cock crowed, and Peter ran into the night, and he wept. He wept. The next morning, Jesus had been tried by the Sanhedrin, by the high priest. He comes before Pilate. Pilate gives the sentence for him to be condemned. By that afternoon, he is led out of town to Golgotha, which is called the Skull. And there the Roman soldiers nail him to a cross and he is crucified between two thieves. In 24 hours, it had gone from all this excitement and all these crowds to he is dying. And on the cross, looking out across this crowd of people, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, scholars have talked about this, and they've said, who is them? Father, forgive them. Who is them? Is it the religious authorities who had been working so hard to entrap him? Was it Pilate and the Roman government or the soldiers who nailed him to the cross? Was it his disciples, those who betrayed him? Those who denied him? Most scholars say the answer is yes to all the above. It was those who who tried to entrap him. It was those who physically crucified him. It was those who denied him and betrayed him. To all of those, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The message is quite clear and simple. For all of those who turned on God, God didn't walk away from them. Those who quit on God, God didn't quit on them. It's a message of grace. It is such good news, it almost sounds impossible. But we learn it is an impossible possibility. I want to continue on with the sermon series this morning as we think about this message from the cross, this promise of God's grace that says God doesn't quit on you, even when you quit on God, God hasn't quit on you. Just two things I want us to think about. First of all, what can you and I do to help experience God's grace? I believe it's accept responsibility for our mistakes, our failures, our sins, to accept responsibility and to say, I'm sorry. It's one of the hardest things in the world to do. 
Because as you go through life and things don't go well, we want to blame God. We want to blame others rather than accepting responsibility for the things we may have done. And the truth is God's love is always being offered, but you can't receive it until you come home. You remember the parable Jesus told? To me, it's the most important parable in the whole Bible. The story of the prodigal son, the son who comes to the father, and he says, Dad, give me my share of the inheritance. I mean, Dad isn't dead yet. And he gives him his share of the inheritance. And he goes off and messes his life up, blows through all the cash, and then one day comes to himself and says, you know, I'm about to starve to death and I'm eating with the pigs and my father's servants have more than me. And so he decides to come home and as he heads for home, the father sees him at a distance, it says, and he runs out to meet him and the son says, Father, I have sinned against you and before God. I am no longer worthy to be called your son will you take me back as a hired servant? And the father falls on his neck and he hugs him and he says, go kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party. My son who was dead is alive. Jesus tells us the story to say, do you understand? The father never stopped loving the son. The son had turned his back on the father, but the father had never quit loving the son. But the son couldn't know it until he accepted responsibility and came home. And that love was waiting for him. You know, recently I've been reading a lot about um, Pope uh, Francis. What an amazing guy. You know, he's, I think, working so hard to try to, to help grow the church and to share the gospel and has such a wonderful spirit. I think he represents the Christian faith very well. But as I was reading about Pope Francis, it made me go back and think about a really wonderful opportunity I had about 15 years ago where the Lilly Foundation put on three different seminars across America and they invited some Protestant leaders to come and to meet with some Catholic leaders in these different areas and just try to open dialogue. You know, quite often Protestant pastors go hang out with other Protestant pastors of other denominations trying to learn what works for you, what works for you. But do Protestants and Catholics usually get together and do the same? So the whole idea is to try to get Protestants and Catholics together to talk. And, and I was invited to be one of those. And so I flew to Boston. There's a lot of strong, good Catholics there. And I went up to go meet with this group and we were holding these sessions and then there was press and other people around to kind of talk and What was interesting to learn was how many of the Catholics in Boston did not like the theology of Pope John Paul, who was Pope at that time. I mean, Pope John Paul was very conservative. And I found the Catholics in America did not like his stance. They'd say, can priests get married? No. Can women be priests? No. What about contraceptives? No. Can there be autonomy in the church in America? No. There was a lot of dislike. However, when it came right down to it, they loved Pope John Paul. They disagreed on theology, but they loved him because he was a man who was very genuine and real as a human being. Did you know Pope John Paul was the first pope to ever put foot in a synagogue? 
that Pope John Paul was the first pope to go to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem and to pray and to stick a prayer into that Wailing Wall. That Pope John Paul was the first pope to refer to the Jews as our older brother. That Pope John Paul said to the Jews, we failed you in the Holocaust. We could and should have done more. Forgive us. We were wrong. He was the first pope to ever go put foot in a mosque. He was the first pope to speak up and say, when the Muslims were moved off their land in the 1940s, land they had been living on for 1,900 years, and they were dispersed with no place to go, that was wrong, and we should do something. We have failed you. We're sorry. He was the first pope to apologize for the Crusades back in the 11th and 12th centuries. He talked about how we had rounded up Jews and put them in a synagogue and burned them alive. We put Muslims in a mosque and we burned them alive. He said we were wrong. Can you forgive us? He was the first pope to apologize for the Spanish Inquisition back in the 14, 1500s. He apologized to science. You know, the church hadn't always been on the same side as science. Back in the middle 1600s, it was Galileo. Galileo who figured out that Copernicus was right. The sun is the center of the universe, not the earth. And when Galileo came out and said, you know, the earth's going around the sun, the church said, bite your tongue. That's just not true. And if you say that, we will burn you at the stake. They burned his books and they put him under house arrest. It took 350 years before finally the church came out and said, all right, you were right, we were wrong. Pope John Paul said, we were wrong. We need to be forgiven. No, that is strength. That's not weakness. Leaders feel like it's always weakness. You can't ever say, I was wrong. I made a mistake. Can you forgive me? We always act like that's weakness. It takes strength to ask for forgiveness. God's grace is always being offered. But you can't experience it until you're willing to accept responsibility and say you're sorry. It is so much easier to blame God and blame others. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Even if you've quit on God, God has not quit on you. And so secondly, those of us who have been forgiven are called to forgive. Those who have been forgiven are called to forgive. You know, that's not an easy thing and it's not a light thing to do. And when you forgive somebody who has wronged you, forgiveness does not mean you're saying, oh, it doesn't matter what you did to me. It does matter. 
Forgiveness is when you're willing to say, what you did hurt me and it mattered, but I give up the right to get even. That takes strength. Again, you remember the parable Jesus told about the servant who owed his master a million dollars? And the master said, it's time to pay. And he came to the master and said, I don't have it. Can you give me some time? And the master said, now that I think about it, your debt's forgiven. And so the servant goes down the road and there he sees another servant who owes him $1,000 and he says, pay me what you owe. And the servant said, I don't have that $1,000. Could you give me some time? And he said, no, throw him in jail. And the master hears about it and says, goodness gracious alive. You asked me to forgive you and I forgave you a million dollars. You couldn't forgive a fellow servant a thousand dollars? The message was clear. We who have been forgiven, well, we're asked to forgive. And forgiveness isn't about saying what happened doesn't matter. It does, but we say, I'm going to give up the right to get even. Let's sit down and talk about this. You accept responsibility. I accept responsibility. The other day I was watching on TV Rick Steves. Some of you watch Rick Steves. He's on the educational channel. Um, He's one who is a travel agent, kind of travels all around the world, and he's seeing different places, and, and he tells you the great hotels to stay and things to eat. But beyond that, he teaches you lots of history, and I love the way he tells the history. He'd gone to Scotland. And the whole trip started in this wonderful little town called Oban. And he moved to this town of Oban, which was quite fascinating and sightseeing, and then moved on to a little town called Glencoe. And it's out among these hills that are green and these valleys, Glencoe. And one of those there began walking him around and showing him the countryside. And he said, here's a lake. And you see a little island out there? That's called the Island of Discussion. We have had a long history that whenever people disagree, whenever two people are arguing and they are fighting, we send them to the island of discussion. Now, the island of discussion isn't as big as a sanctuary. They put them on the island of discussion. He said, we give them some oat bread, some cheese, and some scotch whiskey. And they have to stay on the island until they resolve their differences and they work things out. He said, we've been doing this for 1,500 years and we only know of one murder. Okay, so it's not perfect, but I think it's pretty good now. 1,500 years, you go to the island of discussion and you don't leave until you got it worked out. to be able to ask for forgiveness, to offer forgiveness. It was about a year ago. I was telling you about Leslie Van Hooten. And I couldn't tell you the end of the story because it hadn't happened, but the next chapter has now taken place. I wanted to bring you up to date. You remember Leslie Van Hooten was a part of the Charles Manson gang? This was back in the 1960s. 1969 had been the summer of love. And when it came to the end, (coughs) Charles Manson wanted to start a revolution through murder. And so he got a a group of people together and they went and attacked Sharon Tate, who was an actress. She was eight months pregnant. They killed her and four other people. 
And then the next night they killed the LaBiancas, Mr. and Mrs. LaBianca. They were ultimately captured in 69. They were put into jail. They finally were tried in 72. And everyone in the gang was sentenced to death. It was only because the Constitution in uh, the Supreme Court in California ruled it unconstitutional that they were spared the death penalty and instead they were given life in prison. Leslie Van Houten was 19 years old when all this happened. She was the youngest person ever to be sentenced to death um, with with her age because of what she did. It turned out Leslie Van Houten had grown up in church. Her family was a good family. Grew up going to church, sang in the choir. She was homecoming queen. And then in late high school, her parents got a divorce. Her home life became so unstable, she felt it was her fault and her responsibility. She was struggling. She got into drugs. And when she got into drugs, suddenly she was hearing Charles Manson. And before she knew it, she was sucked into this gang. And before she knew it, they were committing murder. And now she was in prison. Well, while she was in prison, after a couple of years, she had a conversion experience. She said she'd become a Christian. She started going to Bible study. Then she really studied the Bible. She started teaching Bible studies. She got her bachelor's degree and earned a master's degree. She started trying to help with other prisoners. And then she started helping with the guards. She got interviewed by lots of counselors and, and psychologists. And they all came away saying, this is for real. She really has changed. This is a conversion experience. I mean, 47 years went by. 47 years. She was now 66 years old. And in 47 years, she had never done anything wrong in prison. In fact, they said she's a model prisoner. She's helping everybody. Well, she became eligible for parole and... Every time she became eligible for parole, they would bring her in and they would sit her down and they'd call the meeting to order and they'd say, meeting is called to order, parole denied, the crimes are too heinous to even consider. Bang, it's over. Back to jail she went. That's how long it lasted. It took a minute or two. That's what it was like 19 times. Every other year, 19 times come and they get sent right back to prison. Last year was the 20th time. And when she came in, they talked. They listened to the psychologist. They listened to her. They listened to guards. In the end, they debated for five hours and they voted to grant her parole. That's where I was telling you a year ago. They granted her parole. But it didn't happen until it goes to the governor's desk to sign. The governor didn't want to deal with it. And he kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And in the meantime, Deborah Tate, the sister of Sharon Tate, she started a letter writing campaign and social media campaign to remind everybody about the crimes and how horrible they were and what these people had done and write into the governor. And the political pressure was great for the governor And so finally, just a couple of months ago, he made the decision not to sign the pardon. There will be no parole. She stayed in jail. There's a reporter who went to go interview Deborah Tate. 
And Deborah Tate explained to her that for the last 47 years, she's made sure that she has attended every parole hearing of every member of the Manson gang to make sure to argue against that no one get let out of prison for what they did. And this reporter said, well, do you believe that people can change? Do you believe that Leslie has changed? And she said, absolutely not. She is a monster. She is a horrible criminal. And if you let her out, she will do the same thing. She is a danger to society and must be kept in prison. And the reporter listened to this and said, you know, I I know that Leslie got a life sentence, but it sounds like she isn't the only one who got a life sentence. And Deborah thought about it for a moment, and then she said, you're right, absolutely. We got a life sentence. Ever since the murders, it's never been the same. We've never been able to pull it back together. It's always been so hard. We got a life sentence too. And I thought about that, and I have to say, I've never had relative, brutally murdered. So I can't say, I guess, exactly how I'd feel. But I can say, I don't think God wanted Deborah or any of those to have a life sentence of 47 years of bitterness and anger and to live in their own prison. I don't think that's what God wanted for them. It is God's grace that can heal us And give us a new beginning. It starts when we accept responsibility and experience God's grace. It is then we who are forgiven who are asked to forgive. And it is in forgiving that we open our heart to experience more of that God's grace and to be drawn ever closer into His presence. It's how you start again. The essence of Jesus' ministry and message, even if you quit on God, God hadn't quit on you. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The good news seems impossible. But the cross tells us it is an impossible possibility. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.